We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to continue in our little mini-series here that uh, we're calling Battle Ready. And it really was just um, a way to um, get us primed for what we're learning on Wednesday night that I started looking at the first couple of verses in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10, 11, and 12. And it took me a little longer than I anticipated. So I was already thinking we'd be back in First Peter, but we're still here in Ephesians. And I want to finish up what we started a couple weeks ago, talking about the schemes of the devil. And again, hopefully this will just serve as a supplement to what we're learning on Wednesday nights with the armor and the different pieces of armor. But let me just read for you the first few verses of this text. Uh, we'll be going back to it again, like I said, for the next few weeks on Wednesday nights as well. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Father, thank you for another opportunity to go back to this critical text that so much of um, our victory um, as Christians hinges on us understanding what Paul said here. And we know ultimately Paul was inspired by your spirit to say these things, to write these things. And so we appeal to that same spirit now to illuminate us, to understand uh, what these words mean and uh, how they apply to our lives. And we'll give you the thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, when we began this series that we're calling Battle Ready, I guess if we want an overarching uh, title for it, uh, the first book that I pulled off my shelf and started to read was an old dusty Jay Adams book that I remember was, uh, I thought I had, and uh, sure enough, I found it, and it's called Winning the War Within, A Biblical Strategy for Spiritual Warfare. Uh, they've just actually republished this, uh, and so I would encourage you to consider purchasing it. Uh, it's a great little resource uh, that I found very helpful. I just was able to finish it this week. But it's written from the perspective of a biblical counselor who's seeking to help counselees battle besetting sins in their lives. Listen to what Adam said in one of the opening chapters. I think this is very insightful. And I quote, he said, how well are you trained in spiritual warfare? Do you even think of day-to-day -day experiences as encounters with the enemy? The fact that so many of us seldom think about our lives, our problems, and our decisions in military terms accounts for a great deal of the flabbiness of the present-day church. Sorry, that's not very complimentary, right? To call us all flabby. He goes on, there are members of the Lord's army strewn all over the battlefield who don't know what hit them. Why? Because they don't even know they are at war. And not knowing, they take inadequate precautions to protect themselves from danger because they know little or nothing of the enemy's ways or how to combat them. They are inexperienced in warfare and the use of spiritual weapons. They are an army unprepared for war. And then he closes with this. He says, it is time to sound the trumpet and summon the troops for action. We had better sound reveille or we may soon be playing taps. And I think that's essentially what Paul was doing here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. He was summoning the troops for action by playing reveille. And whenever you read Ephesians 6, verse 10... From now on, I hope you get the picture in your mind of, a, of, an, a, 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 of an army person, someone, a military, a soldier with a trumpet playing reveille, which is 
played to do what? To wake up. We're at war. And so as I've already said that Paul is like a seasoned war in general here in these, in these verses and he's briefing the troops for battle and he's laying out a strategy that involves four tactics for standing firm against the attacks of Satan and his forces. We said the first tactic is to solely rely on your commander, to solely rely on your commander. And in the opening two verses, Paul barked out two orders which stress the, 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 the necessity for us to depend on the power and the protection that God provides. He tells us to be courageous in verse 10. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and then tells us to be armed. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. But that's not all. As Adam said so well, we must know the enemy's ways so that we can combat them. And so the second tactic that Paul mentions here is that we need to also wisely know our enemy. We need to wisely know our enemy. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And I said last time, when it comes to the devil, uh, and demons, there are typically two extremes out there. Uh, we can either underestimate their power, and a lot of people do that, uh, and there are also those who exaggerate their power. And the way for us to avoid these two extremes is to make sure that we draw our understanding of the spirit realm from the pages of Scripture alone. And there's a theological term that all of what we've been talking about and we'll continue to talk about this summer, it all falls under one category in systematic theology known as what? Angelology. Because ultimately Satan was an angel, is an angel, and so are demons. They're fallen angels. And, and we need to know how to stand firm against the scheme, their schemes, their methodia, literally in the Greek there, and Paul was referring to the many uh, devious tactics and, and crafty strategies that, that the devil uses to trick us and to take advantage of us and lead us astray into sin. He warned the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that, that they should know, make sure they're not ignorant of the devil's schemes so that he couldn't take advantage of them. He says, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, we are not ignorant of his schemes. And we talked about how uh, in sports, right, what do teams do before they uh, meet uh, an upcoming opponent? They watch game tapes and they analyze those and they go back over them and they hit rewind and they watch it over and over again and they analyze, you know, how that quarterback may, maybe have, has been picking apart defenses, you know, over the last, uh, you know, few games and how they can prevent him from doing the same to their defense. Maybe another uh, more appropriate analogy is, is military intelligent reports. Every military leader studies intelligent, intelligence reports on the enemy before he goes to battle against them. And God has provided us with intelligent reports, intelligence reports of our enemy. It's right here. The Bible shows us everything we need to know about the devil and demons. And so what do we know about our enemy from God's word? We said there was basically uh, all that the Bible says about Satan and, 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 and demons can be summarized under three categories, where uh, he came from, what he is doing, and where he is going. And so that's what we want to look at. And we began looking at where he came from last time. Um, and we look back in the Old Testament at Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, which you have kind of a dual reference in both of those texts to a human king, a literal, historical, evil, wicked king who was being influenced and inspired by Satan. And so uh, you can see that there's double meaning in here, that it not only applies to that human leader, but also the one behind him, energizing him. And so we learn that Satan, whose original name was Lucifer, is the highest, most powerful, and most beautiful angel that God ever created. 
but he committed treason against God because he wanted to be like God and be worshipped like God. And he convinced a third of the angels to rebel along with him and they were kicked out of heaven and doomed for hell. And ever since then, Satan and his minions have been actively and aggressively waging war against God, doing whatever they can to overthrow his kingdom and to thwart his work. For example, 1 Chronicles 21.1 talks about how Satan incited David to number the people of Israel, something that God commanded the kings not to do because he never wanted them to be reliant on the, their numbers but always relying on him. And it says there that Satan incited David to do that. Matthew chapter 13 verse 39 talks about the enemy who goes out into the field and sows weeds among the wheat. And faithful pastors and faithful evangelists are sharing the word of God and, 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 and true believers are, people are getting saved and they're growing up in this field, this harvest field. And so what does Satan do? He's the enemy. He goes out there and he plants false believers who grow up right alongside real believers to create conflict and division and confusion within the church. Luke chapter 8 verse 12, in the parable of the soils, when Jesus interpreted that, that, that road soil, right, the seed that got thrown onto the road or hit the road, um, what had happened? You remember that the birds came down and swooped down and scooped up that seed so it could never take root. And Jesus actually said that bird, those birds stealing the seed of the gospel is repre representative of Satan, that he comes and he steals away the seed of the gospel so people can't get saved. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus said, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But he laid out Satan's method there to steal, to kill, destroy. First Thessalonians chapter 2.18, Paul mentioned how he wanted to go back and spend more time with the Thessalonian church, but Satan hindered him from doing that. So these are some examples of how Satan is at war with God. And we need to understand as the most intelligent and most powerful created being, if we try to face him in our own wisdom and strength, we will be easily outsmarted and overpowered. And so we need to have a healthy respect for our enemy. So that's where he came from. Number two, what is he doing? Well, at present, God has permitted Satan to reign as the ruler over the earth. He has delegated authority. He has limited authority. John chapter 12, verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. A reference to Satan. Verse John 5, 19, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan is the evil mastermind behind all the corruption and wickedness in the world. We often hear these days when something bad happens and somebody commits some heinous crime, the, what we see people, we hear people say or we see printed in the news is this is an act of what? Pure evil. Well, they're right. But it's not that person. It's the perpetrator behind that person and it's it is Satan. Satan is the actual one who instigates and inspires and influences mass shootings and human trafficking and terrorist attacks and world wars and abortion. How about that? Satan got roughed up a little bit this week on that one, didn't he? And we rejoice in that. That that was, that was not the Supreme Court, that was God, right? There's a lot of Christians who have been praying for years uh, that, that God would somehow be merciful to our country and get us into a place where we're more pleasing to Him. Now, um, while we rejoice in that decision, um, I think you will agree with me that what it also revealed was the the viciousness and the venomousness of the enemy. And I'm not talking about 
the liberals. I'm talking about Satan. Because you could see it in the faces and the reactions and the responses of people. Couldn't you? And, and, and really all that this week was, was, was drawing a new battle line. And, and the battle's going to get even worse now. Even more heated than it ever has. Even though we can rejoice in that victory. I think we need to think biblically about what's going on here. And uh, we can be so grateful uh, for God's grace and God's mercy. But we also uh, can't relax and say, well, I'm glad that's over. No, it just started. <laughs> and so um, hopefully we're battle ready uh, for that fight. But even um, other things that, that, that Satan perpetuates or uh, is the perpetrator of false religions. You ever think about that? Every false religion in the world was perpetrated, was instigated, was inspired by Satan himself as a counterfeit to the one true religion, and that's Christianity. Even false doctrines within Christianity are instigated, inspired, influenced by Satan. We already mentioned false believers. Uh, He's the perpetrator behind that. All sexual deviation, perversion, you fill in the blank, you name it. Yesterday we saw it, right? The gay pride parades were all over the country. And uh, praise God we have had some guys in our church down there in Houston sharing the gospel and getting to share the gospel with, 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 with people that desperately needed to hear it. And, and surprisingly, even some people were open to listen to the gospel, amen, and knew that they were hearing the truth. And we need to pray that the seeds of the gospel that were uh, sown yesterday would, would grow up to, to produce salvation. So he's behind all of this. And not just him, he has a highly sophisticated, well-organized army of fallen angels with a differing, differing degrees of authority in various ranks. I think that's the, 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 the essence of verse 12. Notice what it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against, you know, is it, is it, is it, is it Biden or is it Trump? Is it, you know, Kamala Harris or is it Michael Pence. I mean, it's not flesh and blood. It's not the, the people marching in the parades yesterday, you know, versus Christians. That's, that's not the battle, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I said last time that it's as if Paul uh, paraded the opposing spiritual army in front of us to intimidate us, to, to kind of like the military parades, right, of the uh, world nations, the, 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 the first world nations, oftentimes they have these military parades to kind of show off their power and depress others and intimidate others. So he gives us this frightening and, and sobering glimpse into the spirit realm, and so Satan has these minions, and they're not cute little yellow guys with high voices, that are kind of cute and cuddly and funny, right? No, these are demons. And they're strategically networked throughout the world to carry out his wishes, kind of like a spiritual mafia. And that's how he's able to make himself look like God. He, he, he mimics God. He's the, the master counterfeiter. During the Reformation, the, the reformers called Satan God's ape. Do you get it? God's ape. In other words, you know, sometimes an ape kind of mimics, you know, a human being and they, you know, in a cage and they try to get the apes and the, the, the monkeys to, to, to kind of mimic their actions. And so they just called Satan God's ape. That's all he does. He goes around mimicking God and trying to look like God and act like God because he ultimately wants to be God. But guess what? He is not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing, and he's not everywhere at the same time. One question that I often get asked, can Satan read our minds? Does Satan know what's going on in our heads? Well, is he omniscient? No. Do you know what's going on in the person's head sitting next to you right now? 
No, you don't. And there's no way you can know. I know some husbands or wives are looking at each other going, yes, I know what you're thinking, right? <laughs> and it's true. If you really know somebody well, oftentimes you can have a you can, have, you can make a good guess, an educated guess what they're thinking, right? What's going on in their head. And guess what? Satan's smart. And he's been doing this for a long time. And he knows you very well. And so it seems like he knows what you're thinking. But he doesn't know what you're thinking and nor can he plant thoughts in your head. We'll talk about that in a second because that's another good question. Only God is omnipotent, only God is omniscient, only God is omnipresent. Satan has divine limitations. He just can't do anything he wants to whoever he wants, whenever he wants. He must ask God's permission. We know that from the story of Job, right? Job chapter 1. He said, uh, God said, listen, you can do whatever you want, just don't take his life. So God put limits on Satan. Uh, Luke 22, 31 Jesus said to Peter, hey, just want you to know, Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And you can imagine Peter thinking or saying, well, I hope you said no. I hope you told him no. Well, he didn't tell him no, and we know that whole story. But the point is, Satan just couldn't do whatever he wanted to Peter. He had to ask God's permission. God designate specific areas where Satan is permitted to attack and specific areas where he's not. Another helpful resource I came across, um, and I'm still in the process of reading it, so I don't want to recommend it wholesale yet until I finish it, um, but it's called The Invisible War by Chip Ingram. So far, so good. I love it. It's very, very helpful. He said this, quote, about Satan and his limitations. He says, in other words, he is a dog on a leash that is firmly held by the hand of our Father. He cannot do to us what God does not allow him to do. That's comforting, isn't it? Someone else said it this way, that, that, that Satan is God's devil. He's God's devil who serves God's purposes. And you can see example after example after example after example after example in the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, how God used Satan's words, Satan's actions um, to accomplish his purposes. Genesis 50, 20. Who was behind the brothers wanting to kill Joseph and then sending him off to Egypt? Satan was behind all that. But what do we learn at the end of the story? What did Joseph know? What you meant for evil, what? God meant for good. And so that's such a comforting thing. Remember that. That he's God's devil. And yet we know, based on what the scripture says, That Satan's goal is to lead as many human beings as possible to rebel against God and follow him down the broad road that leads to destruction, just like he led his fellow angels astray and who God banished to hell for all eternity. And we began to talk about this last time. What is Satan's primary scheme or method? One word should come to your mind. I hear you saying it, whispering it. It's the word deception. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says this about the great dragon thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. Look, at, look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is an important text for you to know. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, hoping that they were doing well, expressing his love for them in really 
extreme terms in verse 2. This is 2 Corinthians eleven two. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So he was passionate about his ministry in the lives of the Corinthians, that he had led them to Christ, and he had presented them to Christ. And he was jealous for that relationship. But notice verse 3, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent, what? Deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Notice, Paul was concerned about the deceptive power of Satan. His craftiness to lead people's minds away. And again, somebody asked me this on Wednesday, can, can, how does Satan work? Does he put thoughts into your head? Like we've all had that experience where we're just driving down the road or we're maybe even having our, you know, on our way to work or maybe we're having our quiet time and all of a sudden some thought just comes racing into our head and it's like a really wicked thought, a sinful thought. And you're just like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, we're going to learn about how Satan shoots arrows, flaming arrows, right, uh, at us. Um, but trust me, if we understand what the Scripture says, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, so much so we don't even understand. There is enough wickedness going on in our own minds and our hearts, right? We just can't blame all those things on Satan. That, that uh, It's likely when a thought like that comes into my head, it's likely that's coming straight out of my sinful heart and mind. But what does Satan do with our minds? It, it is a battle for the mind. I'll give you that. It is a battle for the mind. That's where the, 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 the battle rages. That's where the war goes on is right up here between our ears or our heart. The Bible likens, right, the head, the mind, and the heart are synonymous in, 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 in biblical terminology. But what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to lead our minds astray, trying to distract us from devotion to Christ. So he brings in all these other things, right, that that distract us and and take our focus off of Christ. Even good things, by the way. Even ministry, surprisingly, can be a distraction from simplicity and purity devotion to Christ. You get so busy doing ministry that you don't spend time with the Lord. You skip your quiet time because you got to go out to breakfast with that guy or that gal and get together with them, and so you're not spending personal time alone with the Lord. Well, guess what? You just let ministry lead you astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Look at later on in that chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, talking about false apostles or false teachers. He says, for such men, this is verse 13, for such men are, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder... In other words, we shouldn't be surprised by this, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, he's the the master counterfeiter. He can make stuff look, look, look real. He can make that guy standing behind the pulpit with a Bible holding it up and telling you you're going to hear the word of God today so your mind is alert and all those things that might be said. And guess what? He looks the part. He looks the part, but he's in disguise. He's not a true shepherd. He's a wolf in shepherd's clothes. So Satan is the master of disguise and and camouflage. He camouflages himself as this beautiful creature that that beckons us to come play with him. And then when we least expect it, it's like he, he takes off his mask and reveals himself as the sinister, hideous monster who wants to kill you. 
John 8, 44, Jesus said that he was a murderer. This is Satan. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And it's interesting how Satan's murdering or murderous um, untruthful character comes out in the way he tempts us. He lied to Eve in the garden, and she was not only duped by him, but she also died, along with the entire human race. What, what did he say? If you eat this fruit, you will not surely die. Surely you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. That's why he told you not to eat that. He lied to her and she believed the lie and she ate that fruit and she died. Not right then, dropped dead, right? But she died spiritually along with Adam and along with everyone who's come after them. You're probably familiar with the story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. This is the early church and uh, everyone was coming together and trying to keep up with the the, the explosive growth of the church, and so uh, they were caring for one another, and so they were selling their properties and selling whatever and bringing the money and donating it to the church to care for one another, and, uh, and so a couple uh, named Ananias and Sapphira apparently had some, some property, uh, and they, they, they sold it, and they came and brought the money and made it look like that they were giving all the money that they had made off that property to the Lord's work, but they had kept back some of that for themselves, which wasn't necessarily wrong. Um, that's up to you, what you do with the Lord's money, and if he blesses you with something and you sell it and you could give it all to back to the Lord, and donate all to the church, or you can give some of it back to the Lord, right, and, and to the church. That, that's, that's between you and the Lord. That's not the issue here. But Peter said in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? In other words, there was in some way he was not being truthful. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. He was trying to make them think he was more generous than he really was. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Talk about, you know, a case of church discipline, right? It was like God just took care of it right then and there. The guy dropped dead during the worship service on Sunday morning. So Satan is a, a murderer. He's a liar. But he's also an accuser and, and a slanderer who seeks to discredit us and, and create doubts in our minds and, and riddle our consciences with guilt. And if you were here last Wednesday night, we talked about the breastplate of righteousness and why that's so important that we have our torso protected, right? Our vital organs protected from the attacks of the enemy, which often come in the form of accusations. Um, Job one, for example, uh, we know that Satan came, uh, well, in, into the presence of the Lord, and the Lord um, kind of challenged him, if you will, and said, hey, have you noticed my servant Job? There's not a guy like him on the planet, man of integrity, worships me with all his heart. And Satan's like, well, of course he worships you with all his heart, because you've been so good to him, and you've given him this cushy life. Who wouldn't worship you? He says, oh, really? You think that's why my people worship me? And serve me because I bless him. Take it all away and let's see what he does. And so Job, uh, excuse me, Satan was accusing Job of having impure motives for why he, um, you know, and accusing the servant, one of the servants of the Lord. Um, in, in Zechariah chapter 3, uh, as another example we looked at on Wednesday night, if you weren't here, Zechariah chapter 3. 
That's Zephaniah, Zechariah chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel Lord was standing by him. What a beautiful a picture of how Satan accuses us because of our unrighteousness and our unrighteous deeds. And when we sin, he's like, seriously, you call yourself a Christian? You, you, you think God's going to be okay with you? You think he's going to keep loving you when you did that? And so he goes as if he, it goes, it, it seems that he's, a, he's the accuser of the saints. He goes before the Lord and he says, hey, check out so-and-so. He, he's one of yours. He claims to be a Christian. Look at how he's living. And we have an advocate with the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, right? And he says, hey, he's one of mine. He's clothed in my righteousness. Yeah, he's a sinner. We agree. Okay, but he's clothed in my righteousness. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 actually talks about Satan being the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. And again, the, the, the solution, the way to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to remind Satan and to remind yourself that there is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. Amen? And, and you can accuse me all you want because no matter what I do, it's covered by the blood of Christ. So he murders, he lies, he accuses, he slanders, he also blinds and binds. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And he also sets up snares. For those of you that are hunters, right? Um, or maybe Boy Scouts, right? When I grew up at summer camp, going to summer camp every, every year, you know, I would get all these little uh, there'd be little, little classes that you could take, and you get all these little patches and badges, right? And, and one of those was making and setting traps. It was one of my favorite things I ever did. I remember as a kid, going out in the woods and, and, and learning how to make a snare trap, you know, where you kind of pull that, you find a little a thin branch, and you pull it down, and, and you tie a little rope on it with a little, little circle where an animal, and you put something in there, and a little animal comes in, and they, they move it, and it catches their leg and swings them up in the air. Or, or the old box trap, right? You got a little kind of a box or something and, and there's some lever or something, you pull that off and it comes down on the animal. Well, that's what Satan does to us. First Timothy 3, 7, one of the qualifications of an elder is he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Second Timothy 2, 26, they may... Uh, praying, praying for unbelievers, he says, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago that all of us are born POWs. We're, we're prisoners of war. We, we're born on Satan's side. And we need to be rescued Right, it's the old ca capture the flag. That's another thing I did at summer camp. My favorite game at summer camp, right, was capture the flag. And I used to love, not just to go get the flag, I used to love to try to break, you know, our teammates, my teammates out of jail. Jailbreak, right? And that's what Christ came to do when he came to this earth. It was for a jailbreak uh, to get us out of prison because Satan had ensnared us and he, he, he had us captive doing his will. And so there's snares all over the place that he's setting up for us to trip us up, to catch us. He also torments God's people. We talked about this probably longer than we needed to on Wednesday, 1 Samuel 16, 14, talking about Saul. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. 
Again, there's a lot of, well, what do you mean, sent from the Lord? The Lord sent it? That wasn't Satan? It's like, yeah, there's a lot of things there that could be confusing. But the point is, here's one of God's people, if you believe that Saul was one of God's people, um, like I do, uh, that uh, he sinned. And uh, as part of that, the consequences of sin, he was tormented by this evil spirit. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. If you, if you can't swallow that example, I know you can agree with this. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Paul said, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now again, what does that look like? Well, uh, that could be a number of things, but uh, it, it seems that 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 is one of the schemes, one of the methodologies of, of Satan is to torment uh, believers. He can't possess believers, um, but he can uh, torment them. Uh, again, if that's not enough, Satan is also referred to as the tempter, and that's probably who we know Satan to be the most. That's probably what we're most familiar with about Satan is that he is the tempter. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry and the tempter came and said to him, First uh, Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul says, when I can endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. First Corinthians 7, 5, talking to husbands and wives and, and, and referring to their uh, marital intimacy, physical intimacy in marriage. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. So the question is, how does all this work, this, this temptation thing? Well, as I mentioned uh, in previous weeks, we are constantly surrounded by three enemies. It's not just one enemy that we have to deal with. We've got, we got a cohort. We, we've got a, a group that has, is conspiring, if you will, against us and who join forces against us. What are these three enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, in Ephesians 2, earlier in this uh, letter, Paul introduced us to these three enemies. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. In other words, you just kind of lived, you were kind of uh, just uh, uh, marinated in the way the world thinks, doing what the world does, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's a reference to Satan. Among them, we too all formerly lived amongst the rest of the unbelievers in the world who were led by Satan, and we lived formerly in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think how this works, putting all these together, is that the devil tempts us with something from the world that he knows will appeal to our sinful flesh, which he knows often does things that we know we shouldn't do and doesn't do things we know we should do. So Satan knows there's a mole. We've got a mole. <laughs> a saboteur. A saboteur. Somebody inside. I mean, this is, temptation is an inside job. So you can't just say, well, this, the, the, the devil made me do it. Well, he may have played a part, but guess what? Ultimately, it was an inside job. Because James 1.14 says this, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And here it is. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, because I think this is helpful when it comes to the role that the world plays in temptation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 
Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, notice now he's, John is going to describe everything in the world and put it into three basic categories. For all that is in the world, number one, the lust of the flesh, number two, the lust of the eyes, and number three, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So you've got pleasures. That's the lust of the the flesh. You've got possessions. Those are the lust of the eyes. And you've got the boastful pride of life, which are positions. In other words, prideful things that you do, right? Jockeying for position. So pleasures, possessions, positions, do do those sound familiar to any of you? They should. They should be very familiar to you because guess what? These are Satan's bag of tricks. These are the three things that he has used since the beginning of time to get people to do his will instead of God's will. In other words, this is how he gets us to sin. And he offered these three things to Eve in the garden. You remember the language there, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, right? It it looked tasty, and it was a delight to the eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. It looked good, right? And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, there's the pride of life. What am I going to get out of this? Guess what? He offered the same three things to Jesus in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Go there with me. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. What was his first attack? What was Satan's first attack on Jesus? The lust of the flesh. He knew he was hungry. I'm going to go, I'm going to go for that. I'm going to see if I can get him to give in to temptation, to, to appeal to his, his hunger. But notice he goes on, he led him up and showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What was that? That was the lust of the eyes. That was like, hey, look at all this that you could have. This could all be yours. And, 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 and Jesus didn't take the bait. And then notice the last temptation, verse 9, he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Isn't it interesting that Satan even is using God's word, which he often does against us. He skews it, he distorts it. And then verse 12, and Jesus answered him, said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What was that third temptation? That was the pride of life. Hey, man, if you're the son of God, what better way to prove it than get up on top of that temple and do a swan dive? And uh, everyone will know, and the angels will come down. The Bible says, God said, the Bible said, he'll come down and swoop you up, protect you. I mean, that would have been a glorious moment. Talk about, you know, wow, that would make him look good. That's the pride of life. Satan offers these same three things to us on a daily basis. It's kind of like a fisherman with a tackle box. Those of you that are fishermen, you you get this, right? You, You got, I mean, your tackle box, man, is everything, right? It's like, because that's it. I mean, you could have a pole, right? But, but it, it, you know, but if you don't have bait, if you don't have a lure, uh, you know, you, you got nothing. You could throw the line in the water. You ain't getting nothing. So it's whatever's in that thing. And you know, as a fisherman, right, 
And the more seasoned of a fisherman you are, you, you're, you're more skillful at, okay, what season is it? What's biting right now? And what are they biting on? And what do I need to use here? And you're not going to put the same bait in the water every time. You're going to use something different. And so Satan is that, that, that master fisherman, the master angler, if you will, and he reaches into his tackle box and he says, let's see, T- today, what's going to work best today? What's gonna, he, uh, he knows the seasons, he knows where we're at, what's going on in our lives, right? And, 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 and so he says, okay, how about I'm going to do a little, little, little lust of the flesh, I'm going to try that one out today. Or maybe, maybe this, maybe, maybe, no, maybe the lust of the eyes. Or maybe it's the pride of life. And so he hooks up that lure and he throws it out and here we are. We're the fish sitting there in the little, you know, all safe and sound. All of a sudden, thing goes by. We're like, whoa, what was that? That kind of looked good. What did we say? What does Satan do? He, he presents the bait but hides the hook. And what does he want us to do? He wants us to hit that thing. Just the fact that it went by, that's not sin. That's called Temptation right? You're going to have lures whipping by your face on a daily basis. It's when you hit it, that's when you sin. Chuck Swindoll, one of my preaching heroes, in his commentary on Luke 4, the temptation of Christ, he says it this way, the devil can't make us do anything. He may be clever, but he's not all-powerful. It may feel that way, however, when we're dangling on temptation's hook because Satan has a tried-and-true strategy for luring us into his net. First, he lays out the bait. Satan knows people like a skilled angler knows fish. He notes our habits. He observes our hangouts. Thus, then he prepares a tailor-made lure and drops it right in front of our noses. Second comes the appeal. He can't make us bite but he does not know what happened but he does know what happens inside of us when we catch a glimpse of that tantalizing bait our fleshly nature draws us to it we linger over it we toy with it we roll it over in our minds until it consumes our imaginations third the struggle begins immediately our conscience jabs us in the ribs warning us of the danger we know it's wrong to take a bite we may even see the barbed consequences poking through the bait but satan's invitation looks so delicious what to do. Fourth, the temptation ends with the response. Either we resist or yield, swim away or swallow it whole. Anyway, excuse me, anyone who has resisted knows the feeling of freedom that decision brings. On the other hand, anyone who has yielded knows the feeling of emptiness that follows and the pain of the hook in your cheek. Beloved, Satan is evil, he's cunning beyond comprehension. He is relentless. He is merciless. He is consciouslessness. He has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse. He is hell-bent on deceiving you and destroying you. And he's had thousands of years to practice and perfect his tactics, his techniques for deceiving people, for destroying their lives and damning their souls to hell. So don't ever be flippant or foolish to underestimate the deceptive, destructive power of the devil. Well, where is he going? Real quickly... Satan's rebellion will climax during the tribulation in the person of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about that. Christ will return and destroy the Antichrist. And Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 talks about that. Listen to the language here. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil, of sa- devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over them over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed after these things he must be released for a short time he'll have one last shot to lead one last rebellion after which he'll be cast into the lake of fire forever when the thousand years are completed Satan will be released from his prison will come out to deceive the nations again 
And the devil who um, deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Matthew 25, 41 says, and then those he will also say on, on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So, where are we at in all this? The only way that you and I can escape the snare of the devil, who has taken all of us captive to do his will and avoid spending eternity in hell alongside him and the demons, is to turn from our treason and rebellion against him and surrender our lives to follow and obey his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our treasonous rebellion. Paul said that God had called him in Acts 26, 18 to open people's eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. That they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Listen, every one of us is engaged in a spiritual war. There is no, no man's land. There's no little place, right, like there was in the field at my summer camp where you could be in and be okay and it wasn't that side or that side. It was no man's land. There is no, no man's land on this planet. You're either in God's army or you're in Satan's army. And you got to figure out whose side you're fighting on. And John, if you need some help with that, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one is born of God, practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, look at the pattern of your life. And do you have a pattern of doing what is right and God-honoring or doing what is a pattern of doing wrong and what is God-dishonoring? Let's end on a good note, though, here. We can be grateful that Satan's present rampage is not going to last forever. There's going to come a day when, according to Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, it says that we are to know that his time is short that he only has a short time to accomplish his work before he gets denied access forever from God's presence, banished to hell forever. And again, because of Christ's work on the cross, we are warring against a defeated foe. And victory is assured. And we have all the resources we need to resist Satan and his attacks. That's what the armor's all about, which we're working through on Wednesday night. And all of this should just reassure us and embolden us as we live and minister in light of the fact that he who lives in us is greater than he that is in the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that while our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, he's still working to deceive us and to destroy us. And even though his craft and his power are great and he's armed with cruel hate and on earth there is no equal and we especially are no equal for him in and of ourselves. If we confided in our own strength, trusted in our own strength, striving would be losing or we would lose every time. But we're thankful that we have the right man on our side, the man of your choosing, Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, and we know that he has already won the battle and that he will finish the war and we'll have the privilege of being there with him when that happens. 
and dealing that final blow to Satan in the end. And in the meantime, I pray you grant us grace to resist him and to stand firm against him for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.